This is easy chair number 331, January 26, 1995. This evening, Andrew Sandlin, Douglas Murray, Mark Rushdooney, John Upton, and myself will discuss in this first hour whether conservatism, the future of conservatism. Now, before going into the subject, I think it is necessary uh, to define the term because in different countries in the English-speaking world, the word has a different meaning. We are heard in several countries, and therefore such an explanation is necessary. Words very often change their meaning. I've often pointed out that uh, at one time the word silly meant beloved, and one could in those days speak of one's silly wife, and did. But now the term has a totally different meaning and would be very unwise to use. Well, the same is true of the words conservative and liberal. At one time, the word liberal referred to those people who believed in the free market. So they were what we call conservatives today. It's only in this century, and especially in this country, that the word liberal has come to mean someone who is a statist. And this is very much the antithesis of what it once meant, a believer in the free market, in laissez-faire, in a small state, and so on. The word conservative used to be associated with monarchism and Toryism. So it was what we would call reactionary and anything but a free market, small state advocate. It is important for us to clarify this fact because conservatism as we hope it is uh, advocated in this country by the majority of its professors has to maintain a tradition that is anti-statist and free market. Now, our concern in this hour with our conservatism, what is the future of conservatism, what is going to happen in the history of conservatism is a lively question for us because one of the things that has happened is that various political philosophies have lost their roots. And while we would have to say our conservatism is not like the older liberalism. In that, the older liberalism, while free market and small state in orientation, was 
a combination of two diverse forces in this country uh, on the majority side of those who had a Christian background, a Christian faith, or an active Christian concern. On the other, those who had become uh, devotees of enlightenment thinking, who believed in the natural goodness of man, who held to the necessity to uh, bring to bear uh, a learned rationality on all subjects. Well, there may have been in the early years of the country some who held that opinion. There may have been a few more who believed in the semi-classical distrust of man which led to the checks and balances system in this country. But by and large, those who had that kind of suspicion about the state and about man were Calvinistic Christians. And the retreat of this type of uh, conservatism began with the decline of Calvinism in the first quarter of the last century. Well, with that general introduction, why don't you uh, take over, Andrew, and make some general statements of interest to yourself and to us? I was thinking maybe we should discuss what most historians consider to be the founder of modern conservatism, Edmund Burke, a British uh, philosopher who wrote Reflections on the Revolution in France. He uh, set forth several marks of what we today would call liberalism, and maybe we can discuss them. <clears throat> the first is uh, a distrust of tradition. Burke was a very strong traditionalist. Another was the idea of very gradual change. Burke believed in evolution and not revolution. Another, of course, was a distrust of um, abstractionism, the idea of the abstract rights of man, <coughs> the idea of providence in society and the providence ruling in the affairs of men. Uh, as Rush has indicated, a distrust of... Uh, abstractionism, human institutions, and the goodness, especially the goodness of man. Uh, these were some of the main characteristics of what we today would call liberalism, as Burke saw it. There's another point that <clears throat> may be a criticism that we have of modern conservatism, and that is a strong reliance on natural law. <clears throat> Many modern conservatives and much of the conservative movement is largely Roman Catholic. And while there certainly are a number of favorable points in the Roman Church, one thing that we Protestants strongly disagree with, we biblical Protestants, especially Calvinists, strongly disagree with, is the strong Thomistic reliance on natural law. Maybe that is a basis for some discussion. 
When you when you say that Burke was in favor of evolution, you're talking about social evolution. Right. I wasn't speaking, of course, of Darwinian evolution. The conservatives have always believed in change, but they've always believed in very gradual change rather than revolutionary change, and that's why conservatism tends to be very anti-revolutionary. Mm -hmm. uh, <coughs> Douglas, if I may interject something here. One of the strong emphases in Burke was that uh, the radicals in society were dangerous men because they trusted in human invention yes. rather than history and religion. Uh, they felt, as Job said of his friends, no doubt wisdom was born with you. They held such men that uh, when they were born, wisdom was born in the world. And therefore, everything had to be turned upside down to apply their human inventions, to use Burke's term. Another thing he despised was the idea that we could spin a human utopia out of the recesses of the human mind. Conservatives have always opposed the idea that we could sit down and create a blueprint for a perfect society. Uh, and on some of these points, we, biblical Protestants, would uh, agree, I would say, for the most part, to Rush. There are certain are points we'll mention on, perhaps in a few minutes on which there is some clear disagreement, but we too do not believe in a revolution. We too believe that change must come gradually by the application of the Word of God to all spheres of life under the authority and strength of the Spirit of God. I just wonder... Uh Today, if uh, Generation X will know about Edmund Burke anywhere in their education, mm. uh, unfortunately, I, I, not probably. I suspect that there'll be PhDs. Uh, people get their doctorates from universities from Generation X who will never hear about them. They'll rely mm. on the popular press to tell them what conservatism is. Uh, today, uh, we're seeing conservatism applied to the uh, old statists in Russia who want to preserve the communist system yes. in the popular press. Currently, within the past week or so, the term has been applied to uh, the Democrats who want to preserve the old order in Congress because they don't want to lose their perks and privileges. So it's going to be very difficult for the average person growing up today, unless they study Edmund Burke or go back a ways, to even know what conservatism is all about, because conservatives have been demonized in the press uh, simply being opposed to change. Douglas, you don't have to go to Generation X for people not to hear Edmund Burke. I thought Edmund Burke was the guy that played... Uh, Iron size on television. That's <laughs> <laughs> Raymond Burr. Yeah. So, uh, uh, you know, there was an Aaron Burr. I'm I'm ashamed to say that the first time I've heard that name is from Andrew tonight. Andrew, I don't understand what the natural law is. Can you take us take me through that? Well, it's an old, largely an old uh, Greek idea, uh, probably older than that, but especially that men can discover the what they consider to be the laws of God or the laws of some sort of higher power by looking at nature 
man including nature. That is, without any recourse to special revelation, man can come to a knowledge of what is right and wrong. Yes, uh, I think it's important to state, too, that the idea has changed over yes. the centuries. In the medieval era, while the term natural law was a bit uh, vague, it basically meant God's law over nature, and it was included, it included biblical law. Yes. And you can find such usages very frequently in the Middle Ages. With the Enlightenment, it came to mean a law inherent in nature. Well, uh, that to us is anathema because nature is fallen. It cannot be normative. And if you believe uh, nature is normative, uh, then you have to go down the line with uh, someone like... Uh, Oh, the Marquis de Sade. The Marquis de Sade said uh, rape, incest, murder, all these things were the law of nature. And it was Christianity that was not the law of nature, but against nature. And he was right. Mm -hmm. Because it is a fallen world, and we are sinners, and we do need to have something in the way of uh, a supernatural power to counteract a fallen world. You know, I want to mention the relevance of this problem of natural law. Everybody participating in this easy chair is what most people would consider pro-life. That is, we're opposed to elective abortion, aborticide, that sort of thing. A number of natural law advocates are also they tend to believe in what they consider to be the infinite value of human life. Now, the oddity here is some of those same people consider us inconsistent because we support capital punishment. Because we obviously do not believe in the infinite value or sacredness of human life, or we wouldn't support capital punishment. That's why we have to support biblical law, not natural law. Yes. If you don't support biblical law, you ultimately wind up with the Marquis de Sade. Anything that happens in nature is valid. Now that's what Kinsey in the Kinsey Report held. He held it was entirely natural and therefore good to molest uh, children. And the trouble was with those who felt it was wrong. It was natural. Well, doing what comes naturally is to say, doing what comes out of sin. Mark, did you want to interject something? Well, we often hear it said how liberals think they know they, they, what's best for everyone. And in effect, what that comes from is, is the, the original sin was to be as God, that man could make his own morality, man could decide, and... That's what man tends to want to do. And I often have to remind myself that, that that is man's original sin. Man wants to play God. And when you give man a position of power, as we're, when we talk about conservatism versus liberalism, we're you often talking about affairs of state and how man exercises authority and power and influence over others. Um, 
beginning even before the French Revolution, I know with, with men like Rousseau and men who have followed in his traditions, they believed that it was their right, their, their almost their moral obligation as they saw morality, to throw off all convention and to defy convention. And they were proud of the fact that they were doing this. They didn't want to be like others. They didn't want to do what was traditional. And they were playing God. And liberals sometimes get the idea that they are God and they want to play God and they don't want to be bound by convention and they don't want to be bound by the beliefs and the traditions of the past. I think conservatives have to recognize if they're going to be true conservative and stand for anything, and a lot of conservatives don't really stand for anything, they only stand against some things, they have to uh, uh, believe that man is truly limited and that man has a certain sphere of authority that is his that there are spheres of authority which do not belong to the state. There are certain spheres of authority which do not even belong to man. And, of course, this is the essence of the argument against abortion. There's a, that, that's an area that does not belong to man. And it's not within his sphere of authority to make such decisions. Um, but if we recognize that there's an area in which man can act, there's an area in which the family can act, there's an area in which the church can act, there's an area in which the state can act, it limits man's authority over other men. And it limits the extent to which they can limit other men's freedom. And then we look at what what obligations man has to obey God, what obligations man has to defend his own rights, and that puts a limitation on our rights to interfere with others, liberty and the limitations of state or any sphere of authority to interfere with anyone's rights. And there's a moral context in which we have to understand the, this, this conservatism. And if it doesn't have a moral context like that, then it's usually just a conservatism which is opposing some particular issue. And that's a problem that's going to be appearing, I think, amongst this, the new conservative Congress. Some of them are Christian. Some of them have a real philosophy of conservatism. Some of them are just another side of a political coin that, that is just as ugly as the liberals. They just want the power, and they want what they want. To back up your statement, Mark, the other night there was a State of the Union address, and the first sentence that the president said was, in this sanctuary of democracy. He called it a sanctuary. Mm -hmm. And then later, Andrew, did he say it was a... A, a holy thing hall. or a sacred, a sacred hall. Sacred hall. So they're starting to make slips of what they feel inside. They're starting to let it slip out. And you're you're right. These men are the priests, and they serve in the sanctuary. Mm -hmm. And it's very interesting that they're starting to to uh, acknowledge that. And I and I was uh, stunned when I heard that. Mark brought up an interesting idea, and that is the whole concept of rights. We need to recognize that while that's bandied about quite a bit today, that's a fairly recent origin, a largely an enlightenment idea of human rights. For anyone to oppose those seems to set him against mankind itself these days. But a number of years ago, someone wrote a book. I can't remember the author, Rush. You probably can. What's wrong with human rights? You've seen that one or I can't remember the author whatever happened whatever human happened. race Francis yeah. Schaeffer yeah and then there's another one what's wrong with human rights um, 
The problem that was by T. Robert Ingram. There you go. Um, we need to recognize that men can't spring the idea of rights out of their own mind either. The Bible doesn't talk a great deal about rights. It talks about responsibilities. And uh, I think that's one area in which conservatives have simply bitten off the liberal agenda. And that's another problem we possibly need to get into, and that is that, for the most part, modern conservatives are not, not much more than tardy liberals, which is to say that the conservatism of today was the liberalism of 20 years ago. Yes. Uh, John Lofton observed in one of his articles that... Uh, the Republican platform was that it's usually the old Democratic platform. Well, I think that if you were to ask the uh, men in Congress what they believed, you'd have quite a variety of answers. What has happened in our country today is that we have a smorgasbord approach to ideas. And people, left and right, will have such a diverse collection of ideas unrelated one to another. It may sound good, so they'll pick it up. There was... Uh, a very popular country singer of a few years ago, a, a very uh, devout woman who was uh, a great lover of the old-time religion. She sang at some revival meetings, and she claimed to believe the Bible from cover to cover but she believed in a number of non-biblical things such as reincarnation. Now, I'm afraid she was very American in that because what we have seen, and I'm afraid it's taking place all over the world, the Western world, having abandoned a systematic theology, a systematic Christian faith, there picking at ideas here and there that seem attractive to them. So you have a smorgasbord approach. And this is why a great deal of conservatism is very shallow. The man who professes to be a strong conservative can come up with very, very strange notions. Well, it's a, the conservatives have a selfish agenda they want to preserve what they think is valuable. And what do they think is valuable? They think their money is valuable. They think their families are valuable. They point, harken back to some mystical time. Maybe it was in the 50s or whenever when things were better. And it is a smorgasbord. It, they haven't internalized their faith like the liberals have. The liberals have an internalized drive it is a part of their soul, and they're not going to quit until they die or until they win. Where conservatives will say, well, the abortion issue is a loser, let's move on to something else. They'll continue to draw the lines back. Where the liberals, they will continue 
just to keep moving on because they have to. It's their faith. John, that is a crucial point. Um, only comprehensive worldviews can defeat other comprehensive worldviews. And the problem is that some modern liberalism does possess such a worldview, misguided though it is, but most conservatives do not. And the one reason that they have been defeated, I'm convinced, over the last uh, oh, 20 or 30, 50, 80 years for that matter in this country, is because they refused, conservatives have refused to abandon their natural law faith and affirm biblical law and Christianity in a full-orb approach, whereas the humanists, the liberals, have had rival religions. Well, there's a lot of factions in conservatism. Uh, most fiscal conservatisms seem to have no moral center. They don't care who's running the country or running the world <clears throat> as long as they do well financially. Uh, I've met some that you know I wouldn't care to be friends with. I mean, they just they're uh, miserable people. Uh, their own lives are miserable, and they make the make people around them, including their own families, miserable. There are many factions in conservatism. If you go to a large conservative gathering, you see them clustered yes. in various groups. And you, you can see at a glance why uh, the Republicans, for instance, have been out of power for 40 or 50 years. You know, they, just, they can't get it together. There is no center that holds them all together. Well, what are they, Douglas? Is it like the... the, the the hard money crowd, exactly. no tax crowd. What are what are the different factions within the conservative movement? Well, it's it's wealth at any price. It's uh -huh. wealth by whatever means. Uh, basically, it's greed. There's another faction here that's very important, and we should probably discuss this. And that is the whole area of libertarianism and Ayn Rand and that sort of thing. Because there are a lot of conservatives who may not affirm that in word, but they tend to be what we would call economic conservatives, but morally libertarian. Um, they uh, want a free market society, but they also want a, quote, free market to live like the devil. And uh, that's something that we need to be aware of, because everybody around this table, of course, strongly believes in the free market, but not for the reason that Ayn Rand did, purely self-interest. We believe that the Bible supports that idea. But the Bible also constrains moral action, and uh, of course, that sort of constraint is something the libertarians do not like at all. It's hard to, to get put together a conservative constituency anywhere without education. You know, there's an old saying. I perhaps you can help me with this, Russ. That uh, a man in his 20s who's not a liberal has no heart, and a man in his 40s who's not a conservative has no brain. And this is the process mm -hmm. that virtually everybody goes through. You don't get the education in school up to the age of 20 years old. You have to go out in the world and get your head beat in, and maybe, just maybe, by the time you're 40 years old and you survive, uh, and you, you realize what's at stake, you finally get to the point where you've got your head screwed on straight. And uh, that seems to be you know, the, the hard way process of arriving at a conservative worldview. Mark Twain commented on that. He said when he was 17, it embarrassed him to have a father who was so stupid. And when he was 25, it amazed him how much the old man had learned <laughs> in a few years. 
Because the, the education, I think, is very important. And today, it's uh, it takes a Herculean effort on the part of young people, if they have any interest at all, of maturing at uh, a young enough age before they are ready for the grave, uh, to find out what's really going on. Because mm-hmm. they've got so much against them. The press is telling them and is trying to define conservatism. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're trying to demonize it, and mm-hmm. there's this bickering, continual bickering in the mm-hmm. in the uh, public sphere about what conservatism is, and the issues are never discussed. And I believe that that's the core reason why the press tends to um, try to uh, uh, miss. Diagnose what conservatism is about is they really want to obscure the the core issues of what conservatism is all Mm -hmm. about. One of the problems which we've of course touched on at great length is that without a basic philosophy any man who goes into politics is going to be like a weather vane. And the weather vane mentality is important because it is so common in our time. In Berkeley, California, there is a very prominent and large liberal church. In my student days, it had, instead of a cross, a weather vane. And the associate pastor justified its uh, validity as a symbol of the church because he said we must be sensitive and responsive to every temper of the times. And I said, but then you are being determined by the times rather than the word of God. And he said, well, that's an interesting thought. Well, I'm afraid that mentality dominates the American scene in every sphere, in church and state and in life at large. We have a weather vane mentality. And as a result, the conservatives are very, very much in trouble all the time because... Their sole goal seems to be to gain office. And when they gain office, their ideals somehow get lost. So this problem, I think, points back to the churches. When you have churches that are proud of having a weather vane as their symbol, how can we expect the politicians to be any different? First, I may not be qualified to make this point, but I'm going to try. The conservatives today remind me of the the Pharisees of our Savior's time, because they were trying to recapture something that some glorious days of old. And the liberals sometimes remind me of the Samaritans because it's the liberals that have taken away serving your neighbor. Um, in the, the circles that I travel in, I all, I'm always mistaken for a liberal. 
because people can't understand. Tragic, they just they just say, well, you know, that they assume I'm a liberal, and um, so Mr. Gingrich deserved ridicule when he started talking about orphanages, and the best articulation of what a good orphanage is is something that he watched in a in a Bing Crosby movie, because the conservatives have no claim to any type of of work like that. Social work is always, or almost always, stereotyped as a liberal concern, and that's the failure of conservatism, I believe. It really goes back to the old idea of the social gospel. Anytime, well, I've heard Rush criticized. People have said to me, well, Rush Dooney believes in the old liberal social gospel. I said, you don't even know what you're talking about. This is generational amnesia. Every yeah, generation has to relearn this, but it's not being taught. Mm-hmm. That's the reason Gingrich doesn't know about orphanages. He never lived in one. No, wasn't brought up in one, and probably doesn't know anybody who does. So he's got his education from Hollywood, and that's you know essentially that's all people know. Any uh, anything about uh, uh, ch- uh, charity work is from reading about what Mother Teresa does or watching old Bing Crosby movies. Yeah. How else are they going to learn? Another point we have to make. Um, I was quite pleasantly surprised when in reading Volume 2 of the Institutes to uh, see Rush's comment that we need to be biblically progressive. That is not a conservative idea. Rush's point, and it was certainly a brilliant one, is that everything else must change precisely because the Bible is absolutely infallible and unchanging. So whereas the conservatives want to sort of conserve a tradition, we have to constantly be reconstructing things in terms of the Word of God. So for that reason, we can't be conservatives in the most proper sense. We have to be progressive in the biblical sense. Well, speaking of the churches then, there's no... There's no reason why we should expect a great deal of conservative, uh, a great deal of consistency out of conservatism, because so much of Christianity has the base, same basic premises as liberalism. It's man-centered. Uh, it's without biblical law. So when the churches look, see a politician talking about human needs and helping people. And being uh, merciful towards these, the poor and the needy and so forth and how they're going to solve that problem. They say, well, that sounds like a, a very spiritual and, uh, and, uh, a godly thing to do. Because their religion has, has no basis. It's entirely man-centered. And so conservative, conservatism doesn't have a core belief that, that we can focus on. That's right. The churches tend to be so humanistic, they're feeding people into liberalism. Yeah, and they tend to be conservative in creating confession, but liberal in approach. That's Very much really so. Saying. And even the, what we would call evangelical or fundamentalist churches, because they're antinomianism, we know that there's gross immorality at times in these churches. And what do they do? Very often, they're very disappointed to find it, but when somebody says, I've asked God to forgive me because they have no basis in biblical law. All's forgiven, let's forget about it. And so how can they demand anything out of politicians? How can they demand consistency out of politicians when 
their own leadership in the church sometimes has great moral failings that they're willing to overlook. Well, you saw this in its ripeness or vileness in Janet Reno, who asked for forgiveness uh, for killing all those people in Waco, Texas. And silly as we are, we figured that we'd be priests and hear her and forgive her. I'm glad that the survivors, I heard yesterday the survivors are... Uh, of the uh, family are suing them for how many millions of dollars? Number I can't remember exactly. But it was a high yeah. number, and and I hope that they prevail because uh, it was a terrible thing. But as long as this silly type of theology Mark was talking about prevails, we're not going to be able to say, wait a second, that that was you know you murdered those people. I think the lack of principles has shown that we keep hearing in every uh, election that people vote with their pocketbook. And I think that's true, because voting with your pocketbook, what you perceive as your financial best interest, is an entirely self-centered mode. Most of the so-called conservative vote, I don't think, is really based upon um, any principles. It's based upon uh, what they conceive to be common sense, that the government's going a little too far, that maybe Clinton's a little outrageous, maybe they're sick of Rostenkowski and, and corruption, but they don't have any firm principles and so they have trouble expecting this of their politicians or even seeing something in a politician or uh, a candidate that they really admire. Well, Rush, you've been called the guru of the conservative movement. You've been around a long time. You've been to the inner circles of conservatism and their silly meetings. Why don't you tell us about some of the things that you've seen over the years and uh, uh, and the things they've been doing. Well, the reference to me as the guru of the conservative movement is nonsense. The conservative movement as a whole has no use for me, and no more than the liberals do, because they are no more Christian than the liberals as was said earlier by Mark and I think you too, Andrew, the central thrust is man-centered in both conservative and liberal circles. Some years ago, before people knew more about me, <laughs> I was asked to speak to a gathering which included... Uh, the dignitaries of the county on the bench on the, at the bar and in other spheres and I was asked to uh, state what the difference was between uh, the liberals uh, and the conservatives only they put it the democrats and the republicans and I said, well, it's uh, one of degree. The Democrats are promising to take us to the destination, which is off the cliff, as quickly as possible at 75, 80 miles an hour. Whereas the Republicans want to take us off the edge of the cliff at a safe and sane 45 <laughs> miles an hour. <laughs> You can see why I have not done well with either group over the years. In recent years, I have been a member 
from the second meeting of an organization founded to bring Christianity and the conservative cause together. And uh, I haven't gone to a meeting for years and years because very quickly the Christian thrust was forgotten except for having someone say grace at the dinners. And basically, not only did it become a matter of inviting prominent people to speak rather than good speakers, and let me tell you, prominent speakers will say as little as possible, as sweetly as possible. They don't want to say anything that will uh, be uh, criticized. And I gave up going because these were becoming really social events, not political meetings. And I would have been interested in an intelligent discussion of political issues, pro and con. But in a social event, not at all. First, I didn't think there was much intelligence in a sizable group in that body. And second, I was not interested in a social event where all the women could demonstrate their expensive gowns and their remarkable hairdos. And I'm ashamed to say that uh, the most flagrant among the women were the wives of the very prominent clergy. They were the most empty-headed people there. No. Well, one of these <coughs> meetings... Dorothy accepted. I'm, I'm sure as you have <coughs> figured out is uh, they're looking for names. They're trying to flush yes. people out of the woodwork for fundraising mailing lists. Yes. And that's really is the only substance at any of these uh, meetings. Nothing is discussed uh, of any depth. And they don't get much money because important people go to be uh, honored and to be seen. Yeah. Rush, speaking of your relation to conservatism, uh, about three or four years ago I read a journal article in This World, uh, conservative journal, by the late Russell Kirk, in which he just severely excoriated you in your book, uh, Christianity in the State. Um, and he, of course, as you well know, was just about the leading light of modern conservatives. Yes. Uh, he was wanting to distance himself as far as possible from all of this post-millennial fervor, uh, which he equated with the fifth monarchy man, which, of course, is total nonsense. But we have to recognize that in many cases, these conservatives are not our friends. No. Uh, Russell Kirk was a sad sack of a character. I recall at one meeting uh, he got up and uh, was quite indignant and spent his entire time speaking attacking what I and one or two others had said about the relationship of the left to humanism. And he was insistent that we didn't know what we were talking about because humanism meant classical scholarship 
Now, that was true at the time of the Renaissance. But he was a scholar and he was going to maintain that original meaning even though it was long since nothing but history. This is why Russell Kirk became progressively irrelevant. Yes, and he, I think he's just symptomatic uh, and or illustrative, I should say, of the entire conservative movement. Yes. Well, but uh, excuse me, but they're saying some exciting things. Um, they're talking about abolishing the IRS. They're talking about some things that could really alleviate or lower the general misery index. And, well, see, and, and I get excited, excited when they about do it. it. Yeah. The extent to which they say anything exciting is the extent to which they're supporting biblical faith. And that's the whole point. They're inconsistent with their own premises when they do that. And that's why there is sometimes uh, a zone of intersection between conservatism and those of us who are Reconstructionists, for example. But we should not make the mistake of assuming that because there are areas of uh, intersection that we are conservatives. Let me add that uh, when they first brought up the idea of abolishing the income tax, they were talking about a flat 10% tax for everybody. Now they're talking about abolishing it with a flat 15% tax for everybody. Well, about the only benefit that you would get is that uh, the IRS wouldn't be auditing all your incomes in the same way it is now doing. But if you'll sit down and figure what you paid in the way of income tax last year, you'll find it was roughly 15% of your income. So what's the great blessing in switching from the one to the other? They want to, de they want to decrease overhead. Yeah. They could downsize the IRS because they wouldn't need so much machinery mm -hmm. uh, because of the uh, Machiavellian tax laws that they have now. Uh, that's really what they're after. I think at 10% they figured out they'd have to knock off their pensions and they weren't going to do that. <laughs> I think what the problem in Congress is going to do is a lot of populist things. Things well, that the Democrats have a hard time justifying. Now the Republicans are in the majority. The Republicans yeah. are going to do a lot of things which should have been done a lot of time, a long time ago, but they couldn't get get away with um, things that are basically unpopular with the American people anyway, and um, that don't necessarily have a great deal of substance. You know, they'll save a few million or a few billion here, but it's not going to have a big net effect. What what's going to have to happen, I think, before there's a real change, and where you see a real um, galvanizing of conservative opposition to politics as usual is something's going going to have to happen and I think it's going to be with the national debt. When people finally realize that our government is a failure in not only providing the promises that they've made but that they've run our, us into bankruptcy, when that realization comes and that our government cannot deal with the economic crisis that looms on the horizon you're going to have to have some kind of real opposition. And whether that comes from within the Republican Party or there's some other catastrophe, because there's going to be a failure there, and they're going to have to come up with, start with something better than the old politics as usual. If they don't come up and reform the government, then the government's going to try to institute controls and regulate us 
totally and say that's how we're going to get out of it. But I don't think the American people are going to stand for that. And if they do try that, I think then there's going to be a real opposition that's going to say something drastic has to change. Because um, as it stands now, American people want the promises. They just want them without any more tax increases. Without pain. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I think marks the current political scene is that a high percentage of those who are conservative are opportunists. They're going with their district or their state and the voters. This does not mean all are. Uh, Congressman uh, Richard Pombo down the hill from us and Bill Baker in my brother's uh, neighborhood uh, and certainly on the non-office holding level Howard Phillips. There are principled men. There are men who are insisting there has to be a consistent position and I do feel this is a great encouragement. Not too many years ago we didn't have uh, many men like that and uh, John knows as do I that we heard during the uh, Christmas vacation a congressman with whom we had dinner say there were about a hundred third rail men in Congress younger men like himself or new and third rail man, the third rail refers to the electric rail in subways. If you touch it, you're dead. And by third rail men, they mean men who are ready to stake their political future on being uncompromising. Well, that's what it's going to take. I mean, they used to call that statesmanship. That's right. Where when a guy went in there... Uh, he didn't expect to be in there for more than one term because he knew what he was going to do wasn't going to be popular. And uh, it's going to take a higher percentage of those in the Congress uh, mm -hmm. in order to turn the ship of state. Because uh, right now they're all, the majority of them are weather vanes. Mm -hmm. the, the, the perks are so good, the, the retirement is so good that uh, they immediately become corrupted by all that gingerbread. Yes, and the third rail men get flack from their own districts because they're supposed to uh, get rid of socialism everywhere in the country and uh, uh, pork barrel politics everywhere else but their own district. They want it there. Well, I think the reality is that right now during this first hundred days uh, there's a lot of showboating and a lot of posturing. Uh, I heard one young uh, woman, a Republican, uh, was gushing because uh, her ideas were being expressed as part of some of the ideas that were uh, uh, being promoted. So everybody that's got any kind of an idea at all is getting some, uh, uh, some notice right now during this first hundred days. But I, I would not expect more than two or three major things out of that contract to get by in anywhere close to the form that they intended it. 
because they're already starting to buckle. They buckled today on the on the amendment for the balanced budget and uh, uh, there are other initiatives out of that contract which I, I'm sure are going to be severely compromised before they get done with it. So the, the process of, has already started uh, and even some of the young, uh, I think there were eight of the freshman uh, congressmen uh, wouldn't vote, uh, voted against it. Eight uh, Republican freshmen voted against this balanced budget amendment that had on all eight of them had voted for the contract, had signed on to the, mm -hmm. the contract. So the process has already started. Mm -hmm. I think that we shouldn't conclude without mentioning also that we Christians have to be very careful that we don't fall into the liberal trap of believing in political salvation. Mm -hmm. yes. We don't want to trade mm -hmm. liberal uh, trust in political solutions for conservative trust in political solutions. Mm -hmm. exactly. uh, we trust in God and the Spirit of God and uh, in the people of God who are governed by the Spirit of God. Mm -hmm. Very well put. Well, we have about four minutes. Anything that uh, any of you men would like to add as a final statement? Well, I think people must educate themselves and they must make an all-out effort to educate the ch their children. And uh, they've got to educate their children in Christian schools so that they find out who Edmund Burke was before they get to the Ph.D. stage if they ever hear about Edmund Burke. Otherwise, they'll never know what conservatism really is. Mark, was there anything you'd like to say? No, I'm done. Mark, what color hair did Edmund Burke have? Gray. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm, um, I'm grateful for all the energy and all the enthusiasm that the conservatives have now. I hope they will alleviate the general misery index. Talk about uh, giving more strength to the states and local governments is a positive uh, thing. And... And if more people got involved, if the power moved out of Washington, uh, it, it could bode well for us. And it will only be done one step at a time. So if they will make those initial steps, we have something to be grateful for. Well, thank you all for listening, and God bless you. <laughs> that was a good